leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. I have a pressing fear that I am going to excite you, and then I'm going to let you down, which is a bit like having a relationship with me. But I'm going to do my best, and we'll we'll kind of we'll kind of go through it. So first we're going to start on a, on a few, um, if this talks, it does. A few, few facts about the game industry, because I realise that a lot of people don't actually understand how big our industry is, or, or what it's comprised of. So it is the biggest entertainment form in the world. Uh, it is the, the biggest entertainment sector there is, and it's growing. It has the highest compound annual growth rate of any of the entertainment sectors. Um, in the PricewaterhouseCoopers report, they unfortunately include internet subscriptions or uh, rates as a... Um, as a, I don't know why, but it's slightly higher than us. Um, it's at 9.8% now. You're going to see the new consoles announced next year. That's going to go straight back into double figures. I think films at about 4 point something percent. Mike, you would know. Um, two important takeaways here, or three. Really expensive to make games, the big ones. Really, really expensive. Um, this can go up... Anybody played Grand Theft Auto? Right, so you're looking at about 80-odd million dollars to make that game. Um, spawns massive franchises. Um, you know, talking to the Babadook um, team earlier, which are about things like Silent Hill, Lara, um, the number of franchises that have now been moved into the film space. But the most important one for you guys is this, that digital will be 26% of our market by 2014. That is probably a massive understatement because there are now talks in research that was released two weeks ago that it'll be almost 50% of our industry by 2014. That means less and less people are going into stores and taking a box off the shelf. Um, they don't want that tactile experience. They don't care about that tactile experience. They just want to play the game, and they want it now, right? Um, this is good news for you guys as well, because it's opening those digital channels. Um, now, here we go. So, you may not realize this, but we're into the eighth generation of game consoles now. Um, there's some argument as to whether we've actually entered the eighth. Um, I'm of the belief that we have. Most people, or some people, believe that only once the Wii U, a ridiculous name, comes out, that, um, that we'll, have, we'll have entered the eighth. The, the big takeaway from this slide is, is not, um, is, is, you know, because there would be 200 consoles if this was a proper slide, right? Is how quickly technology advances. And we're very much a tech driven industry. Um, so if you look at from Ralph Baer's brown box over there, which sold was it, 36 units or something. Um, to where we are today, the leaps and bounds in technology, and the gaps are getting smaller and smaller as we, as we, as we see new tech. I didn't put the mobile devices on here because that would be extraordinary and because I've got them on the next slide. So what, that, what that's opened up is a whole bunch of new channels um, into the market, and these are the ones that should interest you the most. So on the platforms, we have our digital channels the, where we create much larger games than we create on the, on the mobiles and the like. You know, for, I think for the purposes of this exercise, it's probably not worth really considering these. These are starting price of about $800,000 um, production budgets, up to sort of five to eight mil odd is, is where it's heading right now. These are the cool ones. This is where you can produce an awful lot of content on an awful lot of platforms. I mean, just this one alone, there are hundreds of online distribution platforms available to you. And then, of course, the social networks. Um, I have misgivings about social networks um, simply because it's an oversaturated market as the mobiles are now trending, uh, trending as well and they're reaching their feature ceilings very, very quickly. So I think one of the things that annoys me 
as, a, um, as someone who, who looks and, at, and assesses games um, is people who go, I'm going to make a game for Facebook because you know, there's 800 million people in there. How could I not make a coin? Odds are you probably won't make a coin unless you're Zynga and you understand that slot machine mentality because that's what those games are, they're slot machines. Um, but the opportunities are there. And we're going to go into how in a, in a little bit. Oh, I can, I can actually stop talking for a second. Okay. You want to play a game? The audience game. Um, okay, so this is... Oh, that doesn't help. Um, so let's play. You've got a, a theme. You know what this is all about. And, and you've got some objectives there. So 92%. Anybody want to hazard a guess? No? Really close. 92%, maybe, of Australian homes have a game-playing device in them right now. Um, the rest, we might not... Yeah. Average age of the Australian game player. In the US, that's 37 right now. 37%. Uh-uh. What's the next one? 37%. Oh, went too far. No, I didn't go too far. So 37% of our games are over the age of 50. So right now, nursing homes around the country, they're getting in a bit of World of Warcraft, huh? 47%? That's the easy one. There you go. So 47% of gamers are female. 12. Average number... Sorry. <laughs> average number of years... or uh, Average number of years, the, uh, an average adult has been playing games. 26% of adults in this country have been playing games for 20 years or more. So that's an entire generation... 20, sorry, 26%. Um, that's an, a generation of, um, of gamers. And there are no children today who are not growing up with games right now. Okay. Um, and what game? Oh, more game. Um, anybody want to hazard a guess as to what the number one genre is in games? You read the, you read this, the papers, right? Have a go. Pick a genre, any genre. You'd be really wrong. Puzzle. I don't know if you guys can see this. So this was released uh, a few weeks ago. So puzzle is the number one genre. And what's really, really interesting about this is the male-female split. So that's male, that's female. More males play puzzle games than, than females. The, sorry? This is Australia, yeah. Yeah. It tends to trend a little bit differently in the US. Sports is the number one category, uh, which is generally followed by the family, sort of more community-based stuff. Um, I don't know why puzzle comes up as number one in Australia. Uh, I haven't read the full report yet because it's really long. Um, strategy is next, but that's strategy across a number of things. I mean, you could probably include Farmville in that. Um, not that I would because it's hard. Um, and and first-person shooters. Um, so the most common question I get asked, uh, especially when I do presentations, is what do, what do women play? Uh, they play exactly the same games as, as men. Uh, there's, there's really no, no distinction between the two. If you look at it, it's almost a 50-50 split um, through the stats. Is this surprising anybody? Is, are you, have you learned something? Get, get, good. I just want to make sure. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, so, so this, is the, this is the pretentious thing. Just to give you, just to put game sales into perspective, if, if you from, the, the, from 2005 took all the sales of Madden, which is the US's NFL game, um, you would have enough tickets for the AFL Grand Final for the next 108 years. Another slightly wanky bit. If you took the first two days of revenues 
from Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which is actually quite a few years old now, you could have built the Sydney Harbour Tunnel. Okay, so, yeah, this is, yeah. All right. We're going to do a quick case study. We're going to follow the, the course of a game um, real quick, and I'm curious to see if anybody recognises this. Anyone? Sensei. Okay. Anybody not heard of Fruit Ninja? Put your hand up. You haven't heard of Fruit Ninja? So one person. And Jen, two people. <laughs> so, so disappointing. Two-thirds of Butterwook have not heard of it. Okay. So Fruit Ninja was launched in April 2004. Uh, it was launched on two platforms, iPhone and iPad. Um, pretty much an, an iOS um, game. It got that popular that quickly, it was very quickly expanded onto the next four, Android, Windows Phone 7, Ovi. Uh, Ovi, by the way, is Nokia's own store. Bada is Samsung's proprietary technology. Um, that probably won't exist very much longer because no one's using it and that's becoming that, so it's, it's a mess. Um, they were then approached by Microsoft to do a game for Connect. They decided to do their own Facebook game and then they were approached by DreamWorks and, um, and THQ to do Puss in Boots. Um, big takeaway out of all this is Fruit Ninja has now been downloaded 70, just over 75 million times. So at a buck a pop, in most cases, it's a fairly decent amount of money to make back. Um, goes to show the, the power of those mobile devices that I was talking about earlier. Um, I've broken my thing. There we go. So takeaways. What takeaways? Realistically, about seventy-five thousand. The one, the one good thing about Halfbrick is that they iterate constantly, and they have a very, very high quality bar. So, yeah, Chanel would have spent about seventy-five thousand on that. Um, and there's, there's a few reasons it was successful, and we'll, some of them we'll go into a bit later on. Um, so, what did you guys take away from that? Aside from it, there's a you know, shit of a lot of money to be made in this, this industry. Be the first to market. <laughs> That's actually not a bad point. What people playing is really changing. Yep. And that there's a lot of people playing. And they're a really sophisticated and very educated market. They know what they want. We can't get away with murder anymore because we feel the pain. And that's something, certainly in the discussions here, when, when the mentors have been talking about the entire package, they understand that when you, when you enter into our space, the odds on a game destroying your brand is actually just as high as a, the odds of a game making you an awful lot of money and expanding your brand. It is a very fine line. Um, so very quickly, we're going to talk about shifting sands. And this is really the market that we're in right now. Um, and you'll remember on day one, I said I was, I was kind of thinking about what was, what was coming. Um, we're in a we're kind of halcyon days of independent development right now. There's all these platforms. The barriers to entry are almost non-existent. Anybody can make a game, right? You sit at home in your garage with Unity or with Flash, and you can generate a game, put it up on, on some digital distribution service, and hope, which is awesome. But it also really screws the environment because it means there's an awful lot of product out there, and finding yours is made that much harder. Now, for the filmmakers in the room... I expect this is a massive challenge for you guys as well because you can walk down the store, pick up one of those Canon really nice ones that's really expensive, and shoot a movie. And I know this because a friend of mine who I took to the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco this year 
shot an entire movie while we were there for a week and is going to be putting it on Facebook in the not-too-soon future. Um, it, and that amazed me, that, that you could just do that. It's not my headspace, but it's there. Um, so, let's, coming back to the consoles quickly, and the, the reason I said you don't want to think about them is because the reality is, right, there's, there's not many opportunities there. It is an area that is dominated by brands. Right? So 94% of the games that sold on the consoles last year were branded games. And we're going to be talking a lot about brands because Jen, I love her, brought it up earlier, and it's something I can talk about all day. Um, so really, if you're launching a new product on the console devices, the competition is that tough that the odds on you doing anything are minimal. Um, but then you get the... Oh, yeah. Um, iOS. So last year, 78% of the most successful games on iOS, would iOS, anyone not familiar with iOS? It's iPhone, right? I, iPhone, sorry, iPhone and iPad. iOS, um, that's the operating system, the i operating system. Um, you could apply this to, to the Facebook platforms, etc. iOS is just a really easy one to work with because we have a lot of stats for it. Um, and unfortunately, I just didn't have time to get back into the, the Facebook stuff, which I had before. Um, so at, at face value, this is the place to go, right? Absolutely the place to go. And, and it is. It is. There's an issue, though. And, and this is the other reason the mentors are going, really consider how you enter this market. Um, because it's, well, one is turning evil Batman. Um, but more importantly... If you look at what's going on in the App Store right now, um, you get this problem. So in September last year, 20% of the games, the most successful games on the iOS platforms were branded games. So we're talking Need for Speed, um, you know, Assassin's Creed, Call of Duty, all those sort of things, right? They're, they're all ported out to this. By the same time the following year, it was 40%. I'm going to wager that that'll be 70% by September next year because that's what consumers do when they are spoiled for choice. They go running back, back to the brands that they know. It, it is unfortunately nature. Um, and if you haven't established brands in, in between that period and now, the odds are independent, the independent development community is going to be a fraction of the size it is today. And that is a real concern for game developers because we see the most creative stuff coming out of indies right now. Um, so not good news, right? Doesn't sound like good news, but, but you know, we're, we're going to talk. So let's come back to Fruit Ninja real quick. So April 2004, they got in right before the launch of the iPhone 4. They knew it was coming. We tend to know what the specs are a little bit in advance. They knew it was coming with the iPhone, um, and they prepped for it. One of the things we find in our industry is that the right time to launch a new brand is at the start of a technology cycle. Um, it has a, something like 78% success rate for games that are launched at the start of a tech cycle. Um, the other thing that they did was they capitalised on the new touchscreen technology, which we knew was going to be good, and obviously the Retina... Anybody know what the Retina display is? Yeah. Right. It's, so it's, it is beautiful, right? Do you know what it means? Um, oh, it means bugger all. That's why you don't know what it means. It was just a brand that Apple gave to a high-resolution screen. and Everybody's going, Retina! It's all red. It's got to be Retina. It's just a high-res screen. That's, that's branding by, by Apple, right? Um, so they got on board early. They understood where the market was going to go. They created a really high-quality game at the start of a tech cycle. Um, they got it. I'm going to 
just really, really quickly talk about game development because there is a misconception about how we make games. Um, this is a single slide. Um, so what do we do? So what we do is, is really labor-intensive. It's a lot of bums on seats. Um, we take technological risks all the time, and we break stuff all the time. Um, we must, must keep up with consumer demand because the consumer demands that we keep up with them. This, if you looked at this just sort of blankly and went, well, why the hell would you make a game if, if this is what you deal with every day? Because this is what we deal with every day. This is why we love doing what we're doing. All of this stuff drives us to do more. We understand, game developers understand that this is going to happen. And that's why we come to work. Right? We, we get this. Our technological changes happen almost daily. You know, the film industry, there, there are days where we really kind of wish we were in film because the camera hasn't changed for you know, 10,000 years, right? Uh, or probably 100 years. Um, but our industry curses us, but at the same time rewards us. So if you look at this and you think it's negative, it's actually the, the exact opposite. This for us is, is awesome. We like this. Not so much the expensive part. That would be better. And just to, um, to follow on something that uh, Neil gave you, whiteboards, we love post-it notes. Seriously, there are not enough post-it notes in the world for us because it allows us to do very dynamic design, um, things that we can't do on a whiteboard. So um, go the post-it note. If, if you, yeah. um, anybody want, have any questions? On that? Good. Okay, here we go. Okay, so now, now I really want to talk about brand, and I want to take it away somewhat from what Jen was talking about, because Jen was having brand and integrating other people's brands into help your success, which is a brilliant idea. In all my talks with you, my thinking was your brand and what your brand is going to be, um, which is why we've, we've pretty much steered away from, you know, take a backseat on the games, they can come because they can make you money. Why you need to think about your brand and this ties into everything I've just said. This is my new favorite word in the whole wide world, which is why it's bold and in red. Discovery. Everything you should be thinking about as you create from here on out, and I suspect this applies to film people looking at the digital space as well, you need to be thinking about discovery. Every time you have a question, it should involve the word discovery. The reason is, is that consumers are spoiled for choice. How are they going to find you over anybody else? So why establish brands? Why are brands so important? As I said to the Babadook guys earlier, every time I say that top line, I feel like I need to wash myself, right? Um, but they do. Brands do dominate entertainment. That's a fact. Um, an unfortunate fact sometimes uh, because we, we see great products sometimes slip into the ether and never to be seen again. Brands make money. You know, we know that as well. Um, and they offer opportunity. You know, brands offer real opportunity. And this is... You know, I, I sort of sat and thought about how I could provide an example of that. And I thought of Lance and his opening talk with Pandemic, right? So he did an awful lot of work to build Pandemic. And he got it to a stage where it became a recognizable brand. It's, it is now a brand, right? What's the opportunity? Well, Pandemic 2 is coming, right? There's the opportunity. He gets to do a sequel to his, his project. That, there's the opportunity. And then I thought about Matt, and I thought, okay, so Rage had a massive pre-awareness campaign, spent millions of dollars making sure every gamer in the world knew about Rage. What if we took all that away? What if we put this box on a shelf? It's a brand new intellectual property. You know this because it doesn't have a two or a three next to it, right? What if we put this box on the shelf? Is it a brand? Are you selling a brand? So it looks exactly like that. It looks exactly like that. From the creators of Yes. There's your brand. There's your brand right there, from the creators of Doom and Quake. 
Okay, so you're selling a brand. You're also selling in our industry, id, the guys who created it, are one of the most high-profile developers in the world. Um, amazing. If I was to put a name to it, I'd say from the mind of John Carmack, who is something of a god in our industry, or I'd say from the pen of Matt Costello, because names are brands as well. And that got me to thinking some more, because you guys are brands. And working with Laura, <laughs> I was going to point at you, Laura's worked for HIT, massive, massive brand. And Laura can use HIT the next time she's selling herself. It's probably not the best phrase to use, but, but <laughs> promoting yourself. <laughs> Julie's the same. Julie's working on this lap right now. Hugely critically acclaimed project. That's a brand that's now attached to Julie. So when you're selling yourselves and what you're doing, those are the brands that you attach to, and you become a brand yourself. And your brand carries the new brand that you are creating. Is this making sense? Awesome. Good, because I occasionally lose it. Um, all right. Uh, George. Hi. Uh, I put him in there um, because Matt had him in, really. Uh, actually, I, I got to sit down with George Lucas, Mr. Lucas, because I don't, you know, we're like this. Um, and this was in 19... Uh, 94, 95, I think it was, and I was in LA, and, and I got to sit down and chat with him. And at the time, the, the industry was going through another cyclical change, as it does, and I said to him, why are we not seeing more Star Wars stuff? Because, you know, in our heads, we were wanting to create a Star Wars game. And he said to me, I'm waiting for technology to catch up. So what he had in his brain, and the way he was thinking about his brands, there was a certain sort of level that he, he expected and he was waiting, and he was waiting to, uh, to, technology was at a point that he could produce the kind of content that he wanted to produce at the quality level that he wanted to produce it. Sure enough, was eight years later, LucasArts just kicks in, and we start getting some really cool content out of them. They took a, they took a lot of time experimenting, and there was some there, but for the most part, really, really nice stuff came out of Lucas, and, and really set genre, uh, did some genre-defining stuff. So... Um, yeah, can't write, can't direct for shit, but guy, guy can think, right? Dad, you're not recording this, right? Because no, I, I might want to work for him one day. Um, let's say goodbye to, to George for a second. Okay, so the forces behind brand, and my apologies, this is Marketing 101, I, and I, I'm not going to sort of break this down because I'm kind of mindful of time as well. Um, so these are the, the, the really the seven um, key forces that drive brand. Um, you, know, you have to make a promise to your consumer. They, they do have to know that you're delivering in their best interests, right? It, it is really important. Presence, and you know, uh, Jen touched on this as well. You, know, you have to be present everywhere. They have to understand that your brand is all-encompassing and it's important to them. Responsiveness, this is key critical to games. Absolutely critical to games. And one of the reasons Fruit Ninja is, is so successful is we need to adapt really quickly. So Laurel was talking about the long tail effect uh, and the importance of it. It is incredibly important. So when you're on the iOS store, one of the greatest challenges right now for marketing people is not getting onto this device, because that's actually a walk in the park. It's staying on this device. It's how do you keep your icon on this little machine so that when your friends come over, and you, you know, Joe said it the other day, goes over to a place, picks up his phone, has a look at what new games are on there. How do you do that? The only way to do that, once they've got it the first time, is content. Constant content updates. So Fruit Ninja updates maybe oh, twice every quarter with new content, new ideas, new gameplay modes, new achievements, etc. Originality, you know, 
that's an interesting one for me because this is that's really my marketing background talking. We aren't necessarily greatly original. Games iterate on ideas. That's all we do. You know, we take a good idea, we take all the pieces out of them, and we take and we iterate on it. We make it slightly better. And the next game that comes along, we'll copy ours and make our idea slightly better in some way. Um, still original, but it's slightly copyish. Um, relatable. That should be pretty obvious, right? Consumers should be able to relate with um, relate to your, your product. Reach. Uh, and this goes back to, um, to Jen's point as well in terms of working with other partners is, is going beyond what you think your product should be. You know, if you're, if you're making a Babadook movie and it's, it's, you know, it's a horror thing, why not have some black sneakers with a monster on them from Nike? I'm not... Jen, sorry. That's, I'm not actually <laughs> suggesting that. Um, but it was a thought that occurred to me while I was, I was sitting upstairs and I thought, how would I piss off Jen? Um, uh, so... Um, and consistency. So if you are going to do sneakers, they have to be black, right? Um, everything, the message has to be the same constantly so that your consumer doesn't get confused. Um, is it, uh, sorry? Um, is, that, is that all, all good? Great. Okay, so I've talked to you about this overnight success that was Fruit Ninja. Okay, Fruit Ninja was a 10-year overnight success. The company's been going a long time. They've made an awful lot of product before this. So they got the technological requirements. They kind of got the market. Before Fruit Ninja, not very long before Fruit Ninja, Halfbrick was on the verge of being bankrupt. They were struggling. The games that they had made up to this point had not sold well and they were not sustaining the company. What they did very, very well was they recognised the digital opportunity and they stuck with it. They knew they had something. They just didn't know what it was. I know the CEO of Heartbreak and the marketing guys, I know how close he came to closing that company. It was quite literally a day um, before this thing took off. Um, Brute Ninja took a while to get going, absolutely, but once it hit, it hit. And it was a combination of the launch, how they launched it, and this is really important to you guys. So every year at GDC, which at the Game Developers Conference, happens in San Francisco. It's one of the bigger, I suppose it's our equivalent to South by Southwest, um, it's a big skills building event, it's a big buying event, etc. And I take the Australian industry over. I buy one, two, or three suites at the Marriott, and we put on a big press event. So in 2010, when we did it, these were the only guys that put somebody in there permanently in the suites. And every 20 minutes, every half an hour, I had a new global press person walking through that door. And Phil sat there every single day and just talked through Fruit Ninja. Fruit Ninja, Fruit Ninja, and he repeated himself so many times. They also made, I, I was too scared to do the YouTube thing because, you know, um, but they also made little fan videos that they put on YouTube. And their fan videos, probably about 500 and something thousand people have looked at them. Just interesting, cool little things that they made themselves in the studio. Um, and that just started creating awareness as well. And by the time they hit, people knew this thing was coming. You know, kill fruit, awesome. And there was an interest in it. There was, a, there was a genuine incident. And the thing about the, the App Store is once you get a certain level of sales and you're in that top 10 chart, you ride a wave. It carries itself. The only thing you have to do is, is start those updates. Once you're up there, you need to stay up there. And that's a massive challenge. Um, and that's how they did it. They worked really, really, really hard on getting their brand out there before the product hit. So people knew what the brand was going to be they knew what Fruit Ninja was before Fruit Ninja actually eventuated on the App Store. They developed that brand. 
and now it is. Now it's a global phenomenon. Now I showed you the three new products. There's another two coming, and they've just bought half of... Anybody know the People's Republic of Animation down in um, Adelaide? So Halfbrick have just bought half of PRA. Um, so that gives you a sense of where that company is now going with their brand, right? Um, I know... No, I'm not going to say because I'm not allowed to. Um, so the exercise... Um, I'm actually going to give you a couple of examples before you go and do the exercise. The exercise is selling. And I think Laurel nailed it when she said there are influences. Um, influences are really important what we do. For me and the, the Fruit Ninja guys, it was all those press people. Press are amazingly influential. They can start conversations. Use them. That's why they're there. So your exercise is going to be quite literally, if you were selling your product to the press, how would you go from being a little sidebar column, and I've already spoken to a couple of you about this, to a three-page spread? So let me give you a couple of things that I've done. I'm going to give you two. I was going to give you a third one, but then I chickened out because it was very controversial. Um, but when I've had a beer, we can maybe talk about it. So this is Earthworm Jim. Right? So Earthworm Jim is like the coolest character in the world. He's a bog-standard garden, garden earthworm. The spacesuit falls on him, and he gets superpowers. Um, and he spends the rest of the game trying to get away from people trying to get the spacesuit back. Um, so with Earthworm Jim 1, it, it was very much a, a, a younger game. And, and the, the marketing that, that, um, that we did was you know, it was pr pretty much innocuous, right? So we had little sort of sketchy ads and, and mags and the like. Earthworm Jim 2 was going to be a challenge because we were pretty much regurgitating the same style of gameplay, the same character, but we had new characters, and so when we sat down, it is a we, because you know, marketing something this big is never, um, never easy. And we were in the UK, so we were a little bit separated from, uh, from the US and, and what they were doing with their kids' stuff and Playmates, who actually owned the brand. Um, so we, we decided to take a few chances. And what we decided to do is we wanted to up the age group that would be interested in, um, in Earthworm. So what we did was we played with a few of the characters. I could only find one... Um, one image online, and I can talk you through the rest. But um, so we, we, we made it a little bit adult. And it was this there was another, we did a massive billboard that uh, said, Get your worm out for the girls. Um, there was a, yeah. What, what would have been the natural reaction when the press had seen this? That's scandalous, right? Exactly. You know, how dare you do this sort of thing? I mean, really? And this was in, in billboards all over London. Um, and it got us so much press. It's a huge amount of press. Uh, I should warn you in advance, I'm, I, like my forte back in the day was very much shock marketing. I, I'm really good at it, which is why I'm not telling you the third one, because it's gross. Um, you know, even with, with Matt, I'll, just to complete tangent, we did the Doom game. Uh, we ported it to the consoles. And we sent, I think I was telling, yeah, telling Joe and Laura this, we sent all the, the editors big bags of offal, as you do, right? Turns out we had a vegan editor in the, in the clan, and he came into the office and you know, did a big song and dance. Anyway, there you go. Um, so that was, that was one thing. So another thing is, Command, have you guys heard of Command & Conquer? Okay, one of the biggest strategy brands in the world, huge, huge um, label. It's, it, it's into a number of um, iterations now. So when we first were going to launch Command & Conquer, we had a strategy game. The strategy games weren't really all that popular. 
Um, so we knew that was a barrier. It was a war game, and we had to think about how we were going to really promote this thing. Because back in those days, we, you know, the interwebs hadn't really taken shape yet. You know, games were definitely not being advertised on TV, certainly not as prolifically as they are today. So it was a case of how do we do it? How do we get the Command & Conquer brand out there? So we created the previous high scores campaign, and this went out um, over 42 sheets in the tube stations in London, and uh, and looked a little bit like this. Okay, so this is the best image I could get. Okay. Now, what was really interesting about this one was we were little shits about this, right? Because we put Jacques Chirac in there, and he was bombing the atolls at that time, and the media went bananas that we had included him with Idi Amin and Hitler and Pol Pot and, and all that sort of We knew that was going to happen. And eventually we had to go to all the tube stations and, and you know, scratch them out. We knew it was going to happen. I wasn't then in South Africa at the time. And, uh, and Winnie Mandela was uh, being accused of killing a little boy. So I thought, bugger it, here we go. And I did a massive fax mail out to the press and to all the retailers with previous high scores, Winnie Mandela's face, and the Commander Conk thing. I thought, I genuinely thought, it would be controversial. No one picked up on it. No one cared. Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.